Comics. Movies. Music. Video games. Technology. Blu-ray. Television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The HHW LOD Podcast Network proudly presents Real Heroes, the podcast that takes a critical look at comic book movies. The good. I am Iron Man. The bad. I punish the guilty. And the worthless. I am the law. This is our episode on X-Men Days of Future Past. And joining with me are Mr. Jordan from Jersey, Mr. Jim Dietz, and the newest member of the HHW LOD Podcast Network, Mr. Richard Chubtold Sheldon. How are you? Doing great, doing great. How are you guys? We're here. Thinking with portals. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm happy that the temperature has cooled off some in Jersey. The last few days were painful. Yeah, it was probably warmer there than here in, in south-central Texas. Uh, quite possibly. But we've had torrential rain. But we're not here to talk about the weather. <laughs> we're not? Uh, you could have fooled me. <laughs> yeah, we're here for the Real Heroes episode on Godzilla, right? Uh, eh. um, actually, most people are probably wondering, what happened to Amazing Spider-Man 2? And... uh we thought between me taking vacation and crazy schedules and stuff like that, we kind of missed our window right when that came out. So we thought X-Men came out. It's a little more timely that we could get this out. So we're going to flip-flop the order. So we'll do X-Men Days of Future Past this episode. And I think pretty shortly, because I've got notes and, and numbers and all that good stuff, I think we will probably kick out a, an Amazing Spider-Man 2 episode here pretty quick uh, and then try and sneak in. Uh, Green Lantern before we get to Guardians of the Galaxy, which I, I think is doable. I think we can uh, we can get Amazing Spider-Man out. At this point, it'll be June, and then we can do Green Lantern in July, and that'll free up August for us to do Guardians. Well, don't don't rush into Green Lantern on my account, buddy. Well, you know, the you know we we gotta we gotta have our turn at the wheel again. It's been too long. We could just forget that Green Lantern ever existed, like the rest of the country did. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Well, is it possible that one of you has the mutant ability to send one of our consciousness back in time to record an Amazing Spider-Man 2 closer to when it was released? Or better yet, send one <laughs> of us back in time to re-spin the wheel so we don't have to deal with Green Lantern at all. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so X-Men Days of Future Past, as we as we always do on Real Heroes, we'll go over the, the, the numbers and the dates and all that good stuff. Uh, so, obviously, it was released on May 23rd of 2014. Uh, so far, over the Memorial Day weekend, it had a pretty impressive domestic gross of $110 million. Uh, And looking at uh, Box Office Mojo, it looks like the numbers for the three-day weekend were $91 million and change, which puts it right about like Amazing Spider-Man 2 territory. Not quite Godzilla, not quite 
uh, Captain America the Winter Soldier, uh, but being that it had that extra fourth day uh, to, to rack up another another amount of money. And then I guess on Tuesday it racked up like another, I think they're saying, no, it was Monday, it was $20 million. So, um, you know, pretty impressive opening weekend gross. Uh, you know, not the record for an X-Men movie, but but still pretty impressive nonetheless. These movies do tend to be top-loaded as far as their gross. Um, Scott Mendelson yeah. wrote a really good article about this uh, not too long ago that I read online about how the, the X-Men movies tend to be top-loaded as far as uh, how much money they make. They usually make up to between two-thirds and three-quarters of their total gross in the first week they're out. So, I mean, luckily, the, you know, Days of Future Past made enough money that they can justify going ahead with X-Men Apocalypse. Yeah, because the, the, the foreign grosses were really high as well. So foreign, it hit $191 million on that opening weekend. So it's bringing the total gross worldwide at this point. Uh, as we record this on, it's actually Wednesday, the, 20, the 28th when we record this, um, to $301 million, uh, which is pretty impressive on a budget of $200 million just for the opening weekend. Uh, now, we are entering the thick of the summer, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to get some pretty hefty competition uh, you know, moving forward. So I expect the numbers to kind of decline somewhat rapidly. But I, I think this thing will easily go $500 million, you know, worldwide gross, if not more than that, probably closer to six, maybe even seven, depending how the foreign receipts go and how and what kind of legs this thing has. Um, but I, I think we're definitely seeing, like with Captain America the Winter Soldier, getting that early spot, which was kind of unusual to kick off the summer in April, has really helped it because it, it held on to number one for like three weeks. And it, it, even at, at this point now, it's like number 11. So so there's something to be said about going a little early. I remember when this used to be the weekend that kicked off the summer and at this point, we've had, what, uh, three... This was, like, the fourth big blockbuster of the summer? Yeah. yeah. And I have a feeling that uh, Days of Future Past might have a little bit more of a tale than some of the past X-Men movies, just because of the positive word of mouth. I agree. I mean, when was the last time you had an X-Men movie come out where people were like, no, it's actually really, really good, aside from First Class? And with that one, you had to you know deal with new actors and all that kind of stuff. Now they're more Plus, established. First Class so. came out in the spring. It wasn't a big tent pole like Memorial Day release like this is. Uh, but that's uh, true, yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. The critic, the critics have been very kind to this movie. Well, that's um, I, I I should have looked at it beforehand, but uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it the critics at ninety two percent and the audience at ninety five percent. And I'm wondering, I need to look it up, but I'm wondering how that compares against the prior X movies. I believe it's the the highest uh, rated X Men movie, possibly one of the highest rated um, superhero movies in general. Yeah, it definitely is. I know um, First Class did okay. I think it was more. I, I could let's look that up real quick. Yeah, X Men. The first X Men movie got seven is uh, seven point four on uh, seventy four percent. X Two did eighty seven, and First Class was also eighty seven. The Last Stand was 58, and X-Men Origins Wolverine was 38. That's generous. <laughs> yeah, and the Wolverine was 69%. Uh, so it was kind of on the cusp, which I think I, I, I we were a lot kinder to that movie than the critics were, I think. Um, I, I scored it much much higher than that. but So yeah, so this is definitely on the high end, critically at least, of, of superhero movies. It's on. It's on par with uh, Cap, though. Cap is at eighty-two uh, percent, and it's at eighty-six yeah. on IMDb. So, yeah, the quality is definitely mm. welled out between the two uh, two movies here. Yeah, and and while we're while we're on the box office uh, numbers, 
help me out because I'm trying. You know, I I check out a lot of the the nerd genre centric type films. I look at what their numbers are in both the domestic and foreign markets, but I don't really keep track of it over time. Um, how does one? Does it seem like? worldwide numbers have increased in these genre type films in the last few years oh yeah or is that just me and, and no, 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 no. how does that compare to non-genre films worldwide well also you have to realize they're, they're really starting to market these films a lot better in, in overseas markets you know especially okay. the asian markets i mean you look at Iron Man 3 that had a special cut for the Asian market, or even something small like uh, Captain America the Winter Soldier, we had the list of things to catch up on, and the list was different for the Asian market. So, they're, I mean, they're really conscious of that. And I think genre films really cross over to a lot of different uh, um, you know, markets just because they're so visual, you know. They're not as dependent right. on, on you know, nuance of dialogue or, or turn of phrase or speech or what have you. It's very visual storytelling, so... Yeah, I mean, just as comparison, so uh, looking at Box Office Mojo again, it, it's good to bring this up. We don't usually kind of dive this deep into into some of the other stuff. Um, but the the domestic component to X-Men was 53%. The domestic component to X2 was 52%. The Last Stand was 51%. And then we get into, like, First Class was 41%. X-Men Origins Wolverine was 48%. And the Wolverine was thirty-two percent, um, which which I think is kind of the biggest gap. So it, it it's definitely kind of proven out over time. And when you look at the Marvel stuff, is kind of the same way that we're seeing, you know, a much larger foreign component. And I I think a lot of it is they're opening it up to all these markets same day, um, or even a lot of the foreign markets even open slightly ahead of the U.S. market. And I think right. a lot of that is piracy. A lot of that is you know, just the way the internet right. works and spoilers and word of mouth and everything else, um, it it's tougher to to kind of keep tabs on this stuff than it used to be. So, uh, you know, opening it up worldwide, and then I think the big thing, you know, moving forward, and Jim, you alluded to it, is the China is the Chinese market. I mean, I think a lot of these movies in the past were either you know heavily you know, banned in China or not, not shown as readily in China, but now there are, you know, special cuts that, you know, can be shown or, you know, re-edits. So anything offensive to the Chinese culture or the Chinese, you know, people are, you know, are kind of reworked a little bit to kind of be more favorable there. Um, you know, they're, you know, things are kind of toned and tweaked to, to play more favorably overseas than just for the U.S. market. Absolutely. And like you mentioned, when they opened the, uh, the movies first overseas, I know Avengers opened a week ahead over in the uk and, and in the asian markets and uh, i think iron man 3 did as well but uh I, yeah um it's, it's an interesting strategy um i mean you get a lot more of the advanced you know reviews in the press that way from you know magazines like empire and total film that are based in the uk and, and in europe or whatnot um but i mean they then when they roll into the american market they already have a good bankroll behind them so this i guess some of the pressure's off so it seems like the uh, the the genre films are bringing the world together. So what we need to do is send a peace envoy of Kevin Feige, Brian Singer, and Joss Whedon out to uh, bring about world peace. <laughs> they can't do a worse job, that's for sure. <laughs> hey, if Dennis Rodman can go to North Korea, Kevin Feige can go to China. Sure, sure. Uh, so moving on to cast and crew. Uh, finally, back at the helm after a very long hiatus is Brian Singer in the director's chair. Uh, and based on everything 
so far that that we've seen with this movie and what's to come, I think that was a wise choice. Uh, I think Brett Ratner, you know, damn near killed this franchise. Well, the cool thing about bringing Singer back is not only you know it was able to, you know, they they were able to steer away from Ratner, but he was able to clean up a lot of the muddy continuity and, and screw ups from Ratner's yes. X three by the end of this movie. I mean, we'll get to that as soon as right. we talk about the meat of it. But it was kind of Singer getting getting to fix the franchise uh, from from inside. Yeah, that's my question, and I, I mentioned this in my review, was uh, does this make X3 non-canon now? It never happened? No, I I think I think we're we're getting a little bit into, I, I mean, I think we'll get into this in the end a little bit, but I, I think this is more akin to the Abrams Star Trek. I, I don't think it makes it so it never happened. I think it, I think, I think it just kind of splinters things off, but. No, I'm uh, cool with it never happening. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm I'm hoping that this brings about to where we can get a better interpretation of the Dark Phoenix saga on screen. You know, not that travesty that we had that wasn't even close. Yeah, I I wouldn't hold your breath on that one, but uh, but but we'll see. Writing credits, a lot of writing credits on this one. So Simon Kinberg, um, who's uh, you know familiar with this this franchise. And then we get Jane Goldman and Matt, Matthew Vaughn, which they're kind of a writing pair, the two of them, and who, you know, they wrote X-Men First Class. And Jane Goldman pretty much, you know, her, writes everything that Matthew Vaughn is involved with. So even though Vaughn didn't direct this one, he stayed on as producer um, and has a writing credit on it, which I think, again, I think the combination of Singer and Vaughn uh, is is pretty potent because, you know, they kind of switch roles. Singer was involved in, in a little bit of the writing on first class. He was a producer on first class, but didn't direct. And now him and Vaughn have, have kind of switched places, uh, which I think was, was, a, again, I, I think both of them have shown that they can, they can each do a good X-Men movie. And so if, if, if for some reason singer can't come back for apocalypse, I, I could, I definitely hope Matthew Vaughn steps back in to, to do it. Cause I think he can, he can definitely handle uh, this franchise as well. Well, not to go too much on a, on a tangent, but isn't Matthew Vaughn directing that Mark Miller, um, Secret Service, Kingsman, the Kingsman, Secret the Secret Service? The the trailer yes. for that is up and looks incredible. But uh, I'm I'm really glad that Vaughn was on board for this. I mean, uh, one of the points I wanted to make about this movie, I guess I could make it now because you have Singer and Vaughn working together. Uh, this is a really good example of continuity done right. I think. I mean, a lot of times you see continuity just kind of yeah. flaunted or thrown out the door or whatever. But this is a uh, this was a story that actually used continuity to serve the story and to actually, you know, help it along. And having Vaughn along with that, you know, uh, you know, with uh, you know half the first class, you know, cast or whatever, um, it really helped with that. It really helped with that, you know, that homogenous feel. It didn't feel like two movies crashing together to me. It felt like one, you know, thing coming together. So yeah, it was pretty. Given the diversity in the cast of the new and the old, it felt really natural. Well, and when you think about it, just listening to the basic of what this film is, the the idea of it from an outside standpoint, uh, it, it it borders on absurdity. The idea uh, of a hum- mon- mon- monumentous task of bringing those two different casts together and having it make sense. I can't think of anybody other than Brian Singer that could have done that and be successful with it. Uh, to the point of, there were several people in one of the showings I went to, uh, 
there were several people that they were not familiar with the source material. They're not comic fans much at all. Um, they're, they're, their main source of anything X is they've seen some of the prior films and they came to see this one and uh, they got it. They understood it. They, they really got the, all the different meanings, the different facets of what was trying to be accomplished. And I, I think that that's a huge achievement uh, for, for the entire cast and crew of this film. I agree. There's so many ways this could have gone wrong. There's so many ways it could have been overblown yep. or could have, taken itself too seriously or it could have gotten weighed down with its own continuity or storylines or it could have been too confusing it could have been you know too many characters in a traffic jam type situation but there's so many ways this could have gone wrong but it didn't and you know it's an amazing feat that that like you know like chep said that you know he was able to sell this to people who really don't have a connection to the continuities and characters like we do uh, you know and make it you know work on that level very similar to Avengers, yeah, yeah. In, the, in the way yeah. that worked out, you know. Uh, another key component, I think, to the success of this movie that may go slightly underrated is Singer bringing back John Ottman, not only to do the score but to do the editing. And one of the things I noticed with this movie right off the bat, you know, we get that opening bit, we get into the credits, and immediately, you know, we're taken back to that original X Men X Two score style. Um, you know, we've moved away from. You know, like what we heard in X3 and and uh, First Class. So it's like right away this was up front and center to say Brian Singer is back. He is in, you know, he is in command of this movie. Um, and the score kind of set that tone right off the bat. Um, and I think Ottman's editing was really, really, really well done. I, I think this could have easily been a mess in a less competent editor's hands. Um, you know, the way they intercut, we had long stretches where we didn't see the future at all, um, which which was fine. I think it worked. And then at the end, as things were kind of converging, the way he cut things back and forth, I thought was just really, really well done. Um, there was a lot of um, symmetry in in the in the sequences when um, when they would go back and forth. And I, I just really praise John Ottman and the job that he did, like I said, both with the score and with the editing. Well, plus it almost seemed like even with the cinematography when they were in the seventies, it looked a little different, like a little softer focus, a lot more. Yeah, they used a lot more natural light. Whereas in the future, everything was like lit from the side or lit from below because it was always dark. You know what I mean? Um, it's just very conscious choices to like keep you know to keep the you know visually for the audience to keep those two things separate. You know. A lot of daytime outdoor shots too. You know, this. I mean, obviously there was, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, stage shooting and stuff, but there was a lot more, you know, outdoor location shooting than in probably any of the other movies combined, it seems. Yeah, that first scene where Logan walks out into the street uh, uh, when he's back in the past, uh, it, I I was pretty taken aback by the, the just the picture itself and 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 the way the movement and just the tone that was set and like jim said what you know that softer focus to it it just it 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 worked it on every level all right so cat so casting time uh so this is going to be a bit of a mouthful and i i think you know most of these you know, folks, you know, they've they've been in all of the other movies. You know, we've we've talked about them in the past. But, um, you know, back for his seventh 
appearance as the as Wolverine uh, as Hugh Jackman and uh, you know I've said it before we've said it in you know we did spotlight shows on the on Wolverine as a character we've done you know we've had discussions about uh, you know X Men Origins we've had discussions about First Class uh, and I, I just really appreciate. Uh, Hugh Jackman and what you know that he he's not afraid to go back to his roots he he understands what this role has meant to his career he understands what this role means to the fans um, while on, at first glance he was definitely not a lot of people's first choice in this role uh, but he's take it he's taken it and he owns it uh, and it was nice in this movie to kind of see a bit of a more muted Wolverine I mean we we all love the ferocious uh, killing machine Wolverine but I think some of the complaints that have been is every time Wolverine's in a movie, it's all about Wolverine. And I definitely think he was the centerpiece character and, uh, you know, a prominent figure. But they were able to balance it with, with the rest of the cast that he was able to kind of act as almost our POV character into this movie and not just the guy that's going to take it over and, you know, and act like a badass all the time. Well, he was kind of a walking MacGuffin. Sure. You know, he, sure. he keeps the plot moving, but the focus was never on him. Uh, or he's not he's not really that important, he's I guess not, I should say. Right. Usually he's the biggest player on the field, too. He's like one of the most powerful guys, but with his bone claws, he really wasn't. I mean, we see that a few times in this, where he pulls out his yeah. claws, and he's like, ah, you know, you know, expecting metal to come out, and he has bone. Yeah, I gotta say, that first scene where he pulls him I, I got kind of thrown back a little bit. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Yeah, again, I'm I'm glad they kept that continuity too because we saw some stuff early on, and I'd swore that we saw some early Wolverine stuff where he had metal claws, but obviously that wasn't the case. And so it 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 seems like there's a you know again we talked about continuity and and I think that was good that they kept that from what we know of his character at that point in time. I'll, well, I I guess I'll do these in pairs. So we get James McAvoy and Patrick Stewart as Professor Charles Xavier, the younger and the elder. Uh, and I think I think McAvoy was really kind of a standout in this movie. I, th- I think he did a good job as Xavier in first class, but I think he really stepped his game up uh, in this one. Uh, and I think he really kind of got across this angsty, you know, dejected, uh, you know, destroyed, you know, shell of a human being. And it was an interesting way to portray it, too. I mean, we've always seen, up to this point, we even in the first class, we've seen Xavier as this altruistic, forward-thinking, hopeful, you know, optimistic leader uh, of the X-Men. And here, he's dejected. He is addicted to a drug that allows him want to walk. He has seen his classmates either drafted or killed or missing. Uh, he's a shell. I mean, he's just a broken shell of a man. And it's just a, an awesome choice and portrayal. I thought I thought like you said Russ and McAvoy and Fassbender too were just and and Jennifer Lawrence I thought were all three really standout performances. I think they all stepped up their game in a big mm-hmm. way. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Fassbender is just awesome in everything he does. But I really felt he, I I almost kind of like this is his Hugh Jackman Wolverine moment. Like he's taken this role and kind of stole it from Ian McKellen. I mean. You know, for a long time, we've, you know, we've loved Ian McKellen's portrayal as Magneto and, you know, just the way he approaches it. But Fassbender is the younger, uh, Magneto the younger. I think he's just really taken this role and, and done an awesome job with it. Some of the smaller scenes with him, too. Some of the smaller expressions yes. with, with Fassbender. The scene with him and Quicksilver in the elevator. Um, the scene where he goes in to get his helmet and just has those two pinballs. He was able to take everyone yes. out with that. 
Um, you know, even, I mean, you get the giant ranting, you know, wearing the costume, you know, lifting the stadium out of the ground, you know, scene, of course, that you want for Magneto. But you look at other scenes, like, like when they're on the airplane and he's losing control of his power because he's so mad yeah. at Charles and he's so, you know, so full of rage. I mean, it's really, uh, really good acting. And I got to say for both Magneto and Professor X, I was really impressed with how both sets of actors really felt like a character like it didn't feel like impressions it didn't feel like um you know them doing just their best job at at being they felt like the same people and i think a lot of that was costuming uh, and makeup and stuff like that but their performances in general really did feel cohesive and you're able to see both their points of view i mean you see the good and bad side of charles you know he wanted to do right and then you know these students slipped away and were killed Whereas Eric, you know, was trying to save JFK and ended up being a scapegoat and, and buried under the Pentagon. I mean, you understand why they're at odds, and yet you're on both of their sides, you know. It's not really, you can't really look at one and say, oh, he's totally in the wrong, he's totally in the right. I mean, they're both, it's more delineated in shades of gray than black and white. Yeah. Which is as it should be with those characters, you know. So, and and I was a little confused when he said that that he was unable to save JFK, but the bullet did curve, but after it went through JFK. So was he saying he was trying to curve it before? I I was yeah. kind of confused there because the magic bullet didn't become magic till after it went through him. So yeah, well, I think he was trying to say he's he tried to to. I think it's almost like he kind of nudged it, and just as he was about to do something with it, that's when you know he got knocked in the head or knocked out or whatever, and so as it was traveling through he may have still had some control over it which made it move okay. the way the way it did that that's kind of how i took it besides the comedian is a really good shot <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, i i think if anybody got a little short shrifted as far as the the kind of con- contrasting the roles was ian mckellen i mean he really didn't have a, a whole ton of stuff to do as Magneto as compared to Patrick Stewart as Professor X. I mean, he, it, it, which is kind of funny because it seems like they were both in the same amount of scenes, but Patrick Stewart just had more to do. And, and I, I, I think Patrick Stewart did just as good a job as he's ever done as Professor Xavier uh, in any of these movies. He, he tends to be somewhat muted for one reason or another in these in these movies i mean especially like in x2 and then obviously in x3 but but it seems like in this one he had a little bit more to do than he has in the past and was able to shine a little bit better than than mckellen was i think his true standout scene was the scene with him and mcavoy um where, oh yeah where, absolutely you know, where they where they like touch minds or whatever across you know the wolverine psyche that that scene where he's basically you know how many of us would like to go back and talk to ourselves from 20 years ago and try to give him some sense? I know I would. <laughs> but I thought that scene, that scene was a great, great standout for both actors. If I could go back to June 19th, 1998, and tell my younger self, do not marry her tomorrow, it would be fantastic. But unfortunately, that just is not happening. I don't think six-year-old me would really care much of what I had to say, so I don't know what difference it would make, but I understand the point. We talked a little bit Jennifer Lawrence. I think uh, I think time has been an asset to her in this case. I, I, I didn't dislike her performance in first class. I just thought it was okay. Like, she did a good job as playing Mystique. I think in this one, she definitely upped Bloobs, her. Bloobs, dude. Bloobs. 
Come on. You gotta I, love all, the bloobs. <laughs> all all I can say is is it's obvious why she is no longer Jennifer Lawrence and she's Oscar winning Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah. Uh yeah. she definitely and she's only twenty three too, level. dude. She's twenty three oh, yeah. for God's sake. Oh yeah. And I don't know what they changed, but I, I liked her in first class, but what I didn't like about her was in uh, the blue makeup. For whatever reason, I thought her face looked really weird, yes. and I don't know if she's just, in getting older, she, her face has changed shape, or if she's gained or lost weight or something in the face, but she looked a lot better with the blue makeup on this time around. Well, my understanding, too, is those appliances, the appliances on her were no longer separate pieces. It was actually a suit this time that went on as well as a face mask that came over. Oh, maybe that was a thing. It. Um, there, I mean, there was still obvious blue makeup there, but, I mean, I think that they made uh, uh, better decisions in how they applied uh, the different scales and whatnot. Yeah, she was on uh, Jimmy Fallon saying it used to make, take uh, five or six hours to get the makeup on, and now it was only like a couple of hours. So they definitely must have refined uh, the process and stuff. It's yeah. definitely inspired me to become a makeup artist. That's all I'm saying. So. <laughs> I just, I would just want, I would love that job. Blue. I would love to yes. be able to paint. Can I paint Jennifer Lawrence blue today? Okay. <laughs> and you're going to pay me? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and most importantly is when, when Xavier, uh, young Xavier talks about those that had died. And that's kind of why he's in this, you know, recluse funk that he's in. Um, is the positive thing that comes out of that is that some at some point he, he either him or uh, McKellen I think maybe in the future had mentioned that Emma was one of the ones that died which means that there is no chance of us seeing January Jones in a X film again Yay. and that Yay. is an absolute positive thing so it's a good thing man she <laughs> yes. was terrible yeah. and the Sentinels even used her diamond power in the future yeah yeah, yeah that's true. I guess some of these will be kind of quick hits because they really didn't have a whole lot to do in the big scheme of things. So, I mean, it was great to see Halle Berry. It was great to see all seven seconds of Anna Paquin, um, Sean Ashmore. And his beard. and Yes, and his beard, which I thought was really cool that they incorporated the beard into the ice and stuff. I thought that was cool. Uh, yeah. They kind of had to to make him look a little older because he's so baby-faced, even though it's been almost 10 years since X3 uh, and X2 for that matter, but... I really got to single uh, out Nicholas Holt. Uh, my favorite X-Men has always been Hank McCoy, the Beast, and he really nailed yes. it. I thought he really oh, got yeah. Hank McCoy down. The whole kind of bookish nerd on one end and, and ferocious character on the other. Uh, I thought he was great. Really, really good stand And his makeup looked a lot better this time yes, around, too. Yes, it looked yes. a lot better. I, I was much yeah. more happy with the, the makeup. And the, the transformation scenes, too, looked good. Um, and the scenes that he had with Jackman were great. You know, he's like, you know, in the future, do I make it? Uh, no. You don't. No. Yeah, that's awesome. Or, you know, when he meets me, he's like, yeah, we're going to be great friends. And he punches him in the face to get in the face. Um, yeah. You know, just, he, he really, I thought he was like one of the unsung heroes of the movie when he was in it. Yeah. It almost seems like this time they relied more on practical, like they actually put makeup on him. And it seems like in the first one, in first class, it was all, it seemed like it was all CGI. Um, and I could be wrong, but there was, it, it seemed real CGI heavy in first class. And this one seemed a lot more practical. 
They also made it the the color of him much yes. darker, yeah, which looked a lot it did better. Look a lot better, and I, I even noticed they had that same coloring on Kelsey Grammer in the very end uh, sequence. It didn't look as crazy yes. on yes. him either. It looked a little more normal. Um, and the scene, you know, <laughs> the scene where he's growling at Fassbender and he has him in the water, I just thought was uh, spot on. It's just, I mean, I've been waiting for them to to really do that character justice, and I thought they finally really had. Yeah. Uh, it was funny, just real quick on on Anna Paquin, and I think a lot of it is because there was some subplot that involved her that got cut. But she received like seventh or eighth billing for, at the top of the credits, and literally, if you blinked too many times, you would you would miss her, which I thought was really funny when I was looking through that. Well, and they had said she was completely cut from the movie, so it was nice to see yes. that they were either lying or found a way to do some reshoots and put her in the end there. Yeah. This is the first time I've ever seen Ellen Page in a movie, and Ellen Page looked like an adult, <laughs> which I thought was cool. And I, I thought she did a bang up job. Uh, I, I know there's, oh yeah, there was a lot of uh, controversy. Probably a probably a bit strong, but you know, people were like, how, how, you know, her powers to phase. How does she send somebody's consciousness back? I, I that didn't bother me at all. I, I think two things. One, I think they were trying to stay as true to the source material as they could because she was so heavily involved in the original comic story for somebody to be able to phase through walls. And I just took it as like that power developed into her being able to phase somebody's, you know, consciousness or phase, you know, temporarily phase somebody to a different state. Um, if in- you can already phase through three dimensions, why not a four? Exactly. Yeah, that's perfect. I couldn't have said that better myself. So that didn't bother me at all. I, I you know, I'm able to just kind of get past it. It it made the story interesting. It added it, it it brought her back and made her play an important role, which I thought was a good thing. So I I don't I, have any hangups. I I thought it was a good choice um, to have her do that that way and have the ha, have it make sense that it would rip someone's mind apart and someone like Logan would be the one to go since he has the healing factor in comparison to how they had Kitty go back in the comic book. Right. I think that I think I like this way a lot better. It made more yeah. sense. Plus, you have the sweet cool. scenes with her and her and Bishop at the beginning, where she's actually yes, you know, we actually get to see her use her phasing powers, which is really sweet. And so we had Omar Sy as Bishop, um, who had all but two lines in the movie. I, I thought it was cool. Uh, again. I didn't think they needed to belabor his power. I mean, the fact that they had him charge up and he charged a weapon and shot it. You know, when you think of Bishop, you think of him taking, you know, in all this kinetic damage and carrying a big gun. And that's what we got with Bishop. What was really smart about that whole sequence at the beginning is they used a lot of X-Men with very visual power. So you didn't have to get a lot of backstory on Sunspot yes. or Blank yes. or Bishop. You can kind of, you know, look at what, you know, like you said, he's glowing. Now the, the gun is glowing the same color. Okay. That's his bit, you know, um, like, like Chubb was saying earlier, you know, people who don't know the X-Men like we do, that kind of visual shorthand is, is invaluable. I mean, you know, you can see, okay, this guy sets himself on fire. This guy's ice. This guy turns to metal. You know, just like I said, they chose very visual. Um, uh, X-Men to use in that assault scene. Yeah. I thought that was a really smart choice. And somebody's been playing Portal too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> with all the stuff going on with Blank, I just, I was like, I was like, I could just hear GLaDOS, you know, now you're thinking with Portals. Yeah. Uh, what, one more thing on Bishop real quick. I thought it was cool that she said she'd been sending Bishop back a couple days. 
because I think that was a little nod to you know to the comic fans because Bishop is kind of known as the you know the time traveler and and the one that you know is always going back in time. So I thought that was kind of cool that they said, yeah, we just keep sending him back a day or two, and then he warns us and we you know peel out. Uh, so I thought that was that was pretty cool. Um, and it was a cool narrative device too because yes. you got to have a lot of character deaths yes. that were, by the way, incredibly brutal. Yes. Um, but you didn't have to have twice as many characters. You just you kill off the set of characters twice. It makes sense. It adds a cool element to the story. It sets up the plot. And uh, yeah, and and it, it was like I said, those were brutal. Plus, deaths. it shows yeah. what a what a credible threat the Sentinels really were. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean you just yeah. say, "Oh, big scary robot," but no, we're going to show you how easily they would take down the X Men, and you know, it's just I don't know, it just really uh, added the you know amped up the villain uh, level for me anyway. Yeah, I like the Sentinels. Uh, I, I I thought they were done very well, and I get why they were the way they were in the future, the whole mystique part of it and everything. But yeah. I wish they could have looked a little less like the Destroyer from Thor. I thought they kind yeah. of looked like Nimrod, to be honest. Yeah, they they did have a little bit of a Nimrod quality. I wish they were a little more Nimrod looking. Maybe not the pink. I don't think we needed them. Yeah, the pink, I, didn't, but... I mean, obviously, you can't go with the pink way, but I thought to give them a visual continuity along with the earlier Sentinels, so you know that that's where they came from. I thought right. that's, that's def- that was definitely an influence. There was like the Nimrod design, at least I thought so. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I I thought the exact same thing. Um. So we talked a little bit about Blink. So uh, Fan Bingbing played uh, famous. Uh, she's bigger in China. She's a bigger uh, actress in some of these Chinese, uh, some of the martial arts flicks that I've seen recently on Netflix. She's she's been in those. Um, and I thought Blink was one of those characters at first where you're like, really Blink? They're gonna bring Blink into this? Um, she had a little bit of a goofy look, you know, with kind of the the pink and then the you know the the thing you know the the darker pink around the eyes. But I thought she was a standout. I mean, as far as, you know, power set and visual effect and everything else. And just, you know, we talked about Portal a lot. Um, that's not really how they use her power in the comics, but I think this worked really, really well. And there were some really cool things they were able to do. Um, my my favorite was probably the, the, the variants on the fastball special where Colossus jumped yeah. through the portal and she had it coming straight down. And at the very last minute before he hits the ground, she switched it back to him going horizontal and he was able to knock into the Sentinel. I thought that was really, really cool. Or the way she psyched the Sentinels by putting, like, three portals together and dragging Bishop through one while they were going yeah. through the other two. Yes. Yeah, good stuff. That and, uh, and, and, and the ice effects were probably my favorite parts of those opening sequences and scenes. I love the way Colossus looked, too. Yes. That was yeah. spot on. I was looking for the little, you know, like, lines of his techno-organic metal, but uh, I thought, thought he looked great. Yeah, and Daniel Cudmore back as Colossus, who was Colossus in X two. He was Colossus in The Last Stand, um, and obviously back as <laughs> and in and in three movies he's had about four lines. He, yep. he did a which really is funny. I was expecting. I was really waiting for him to say "Get to the chopper." Because <laughs> why would they give him an Aust- Is he Austrian? I thought he was Russian. He was, but when he the little the few lines he spoke, he sounded exactly like he was channeling Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I would get them to safety. Was the one from Come with too, me right? if you want to live. Uh, so that was funny. Uh, so we got Adam Canto as Sunspot and Boo Boo Stewart as Warpath, which, again, I thought they were cool. I mean, 
that is not how Sunspot uses his powers, but I, I thought it was kind of a, a, you know, again, I think they were going for as much visual impact as they possibly could. That and um, Mr. DaCosta is not usually uh, portrayed as being a Caucasian Hispanic. So I know there was a lot of little furor about that, uh, that, that they didn't cast an African-American uh, as Sunspot. And I, I just think it's just one of those things. I mean, he didn't have a big enough role in the movie. They didn't really focus on him to develop any characterization where that, you know, I, I really thought that was a huge deal. But I, I you know, I, I I get the complaints. I get, I get what folks are saying about that. I mean, you start with this and, you know, next thing you know, uh, what, the human torch is going to be black or something. You know what I mean? Oh, my. <laughs> I mean, it's a slippery slope. I'm kidding, of course. So then, uh, I guess, running out, um, oh, we skipped over a huge portion of the cast, uh, two actually two big bits. Peter Dinklage as Dr. Bolivar Trask, who, you know, we're all huge fans of Peter Dinklage. We're all fans of, uh, most of us at least are fans of Game Game of Thrones. Uh, I kept an elf. Yeah, yeah. I kept expecting him to speak with a British accent. It was kind of funny because <laughs> he, he, he kind of had that, uh, you know, that higher, uh, you know, kind of snooty tone to him, uh, but didn't have the British accent. So I thought that was kind of funny. Um, but I, I think he did a good enough job. I the first time I saw it, I thought maybe they didn't use him enough. And then when I went back through and saw it again, I was like, yeah, I guess he was in it good enough. I, I know some of the complaints have been a slight lack of motivation for why he does what he does. Uh, but again, but I think that when great I, when scene I, with him and striker that kind of explains that, yeah. you know, when he's yeah. like talking about how he, he doesn't hate mutants, he admires them, you know, he, yes. they're, they're the next, uh, they're the next step. And I mean, I yeah. know, that kind of, for me, filled in that blank anyway. Yeah. When I saw it the second time, I was like, yeah, I guess, you know, he did explain it well enough for me. It's, it satisfied me. I, I thought it was fine. I think, you know, again, do you really need it to be belabored? Um, a lot, you know, I, I think they kind of went that route. If they would have went the whole, oh, a mutant wronged me or killed my mother or my wife or my sister or something like that. Um, yeah, they kind of went that route with Stryker. I mean, that was a huge plot point to X2. So I think if they would have rehashed that, it would have just felt like exactly that. They were rehashing kind of an old plot point. So I, I really enjoyed Peter Dinklage and the and the, the Trask character. Uh, I thought it was explained well. I thought I I. I don't know why I hadn't heard any of the complaints about about that, so I'm kind of surprised there. And on top of that, him having those glasses and that '70s mustache makes him look less like a Hugh Laurie mini me. So, yeah. So I I don't know. I thought he was fine. So I guess kind of rounding. Uh, oh, and then I'll talk about these two, and then we'll get we'll get to another big one that I think was kind of a surprise to all of us. But uh, but we got Lucas Till back briefly as Havoc. Uh, who we find out has been kind of co-opted by the military as their own little, uh, their little unit, kind of like what we saw of Stryker's unit in, uh, in X in uh, X Men Origins Wolverine, and we got Evan. I'm gonna butcher his last name, but Evan Jonakit, um, who played Toad. So we got a little bit of a younger version of Toad than, um, than what we saw in the first X Men movie. I like this um, version I, of Toad better than actually in the first X Men movie. I agree. Yeah. I love the look with the goggles and the thick uh, mohawk. I thought that was a good look. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, it, so it, and the scene worked a lot better in context of the movie than it did after the credits or in the middle of the credits in Spider Man. <laughs> yeah, it did. Like <laughs> I was completely just like flabbergasted during that, and not and I knew it was coming. It's not like why is my X Men and my Spider Man? That wasn't a problem. It was just I didn't th- think the scene worked there, but in the movie it worked really well. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, but but probably not leastly, uh, we get Evan Peters as. Uh, Peter Maximoff slash Quicksilver. And I, I think, you know, the word especially has been that this was like the big surprise in a positive way. I mean, I think he stole every scene he was in. Uh, I don't think Absolutely. he overplayed it. Yeah, I don't think he was over the top. It was a ton of fun. I think, again, that was a piece that they could have totally, totally screwed up, screwed up on and totally, you know, went, that could have went sideways and really been campy. Uh, and it and it really worked out. I honestly thought that he was going to just have one of these bit parts like some of the future mutants that we saw where he was just going to be, you know, kind of a where they've shown him in the past where we've gotten like a quick glance at some of these characters and don't even get a name or anything with them. And they're just kind of there and gone. Um, but to have him play such a major role in the plot, I thought was awesome. Then the sequence he does in the uh, when they break out Magneto is just that was one of the high points of the movie for me. Absolutely. That that. Is and whoever far, whoever is doing the Flash TV show or is trying to do the Flash uh, on the upcoming Justice League movie needs to watch that. And well, Joss I, Whedon, the, yeah. the gauntlet has been thrown, you know? I wish Peters could play Quicksilver in, in uh, Avengers as well. I really, I, I really enjoyed that. I, to me, the big one of the biggest standouts from this entire film was that scene. That you were talking about the breakout scene, and it was totally just—it was just really, really funny without being, like I said, without being overly campy. I mean, the bit with him, you know, oh, I checked your, you, you know, your registration papers while you were, you know, coming down the stairs, and oh, and he's sitting there playing himself, you know, uh, playing pong against himself at the highest setting. I thought was hilarious, and just uh, oh, and by the way. In, in the second viewing of the movie, I totally caught him checking the registration in the background. Oh, really? During that scene. You see a flash of white hair for, like, a split second. Oh, that's hilarious. I didn't catch that. Which was a great detail. Oh, I didn't catch oh. that. That's awesome. And just and a I... bit, like, where he takes the, you know, the duct tape, and you just see him pull a roll of duct tape, and then they cut away, and then you see the guy has got, like, you know, a thousand strands of duct tape tied up to the wall, and... I, it just it just was really really well done, and I think again I think it was something that would have been easy to screw up and hard to nail. And and Singer and Vaughn and Goldman and Kimberg, I think they just nailed it. And every you know, not just from the visual aspect of that scene they did, but the writing as well. I mean, it just it was a very very pleasant surprise. And I, I will never be able to hear Jim Croce's "Time in a Bottle" again without uh, thinking of it <laughs> in a different light. So. I really like the, uh, the the giant stack of Hostess cakes oh, in this little yes. cellar thing. <laughs> like the whole like loft was like full of Hostess cakes, and it's like it's almost like a shout out to like the the Wally West Flash who had to eat to keep his metabolism up. You know? Yes, yes. Well, and if you think about it, back in the seventies in all the Marvel comics, you always had those little shorts that were for Hostess ads that had the comic book yes. characters involved. Right. Yeah. So that pretty much rounds out the cast. Um, so I guess now we can just kind of, kind of freeform talk about the movie itself. 
What a piece of garbage, am I right? <laughs> Did anybody else see Cable in the very opening scene? I don't think that was oh, him. Okay. That does not make sense to me in any way as him. Okay. Um, yes, he had weird hair, but he's he's in the future scenes uh, as well. And even if that was supposed to be him, like both of his parents would have been dead in that future that before he could have been born. So... I don't know. I, I I don't think it was him. I would have loved to have Cable in the movie. I love Cable, um, but I don't I don't buy it for a second that that was supposed to be That's him cool. or or Nate Gray. That's cool. I just yeah, I they, saw the guy at the beginning who had like a little techno patch over his eye and the hair. I'm like <gasps> Cable. But... Yeah, there was a lot of speculation whether that was Nate or you know Cable or what. I when they showed him in the in the kind of reformulated future, it looked like his face was a little deformed like there was something he had some prosthetics or something on there he's got a he's got a weird nose yeah um, I don't know what that nose is called but it, I've, I know a couple people who have it where it's like it just goes straight down um I don't I, I it might have something to do with a cleft uh, cleft lip or something I'm not sure maybe but it almost seemed like he but. had like his ears like there was something like prosthetic that way too I, yeah so I don't I don't know but I thought people that have that nose meant that they were drawn by Frank Miller. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Touche. I guess the opening scenes in the future were just really, I mean, the the fights against the Sentinels where they all die. I mean, I don't know, just beautifully choreographed. We mentioned, you know, the, the pseudo fastball special and the, the, the way the different characters, you know, looked. Uh, I was, I, I don't know, I just, I was really, and I was kind of surprised that they started off with such a big action, action sequence, you know, right off the bat, yeah. you know, going right into the action. Um, it's kind of an unusual, uh, choice, uh, a nice surprise. But, um, I don't know, I, I liked the, the future and 70s part of it. The, the part where Wolverine wakes up, he has no idea where he is. He wakes up looking at a lava lamp. And then, he's uh, in a waterbed. In a waterbed. <laughs> that was fun. That was awesome. <laughs> Just the old and then school. Then he pulls bone claws. He's like, "Oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, I forgot." But uh, that that was a great scene. Um, I don't know. There, it, I just I was so pleased with this movie overall. Just the, as I mentioned, I think I said the same thing when when I saw Avengers. You know, there's so many ways it could have gone wrong, and so many missteps that could have happened that didn't. And I was just so grateful for that. It just seems like they really. Had you know all the eyes dotted and all the T's crossed and all the ducks in a row, I just was I couldn't have been more happy with the way this movie turned out, and I was not disappointed in any way, shape, or form. I, I have and to it, say, I, I, out of all the X movies, I think this is my favorite. I, oh, I I'm agree. In the middle of rewatching By the rest, landslide. but I think I agree too. Yeah, I need to go. I've I I said this uh, before, but I need to go back and watch X two because to me, X two is one of the most perfect superhero movies i i held it in very high regard um but this one has me questioning you know if this if x2 is really the best x-men movie or not this is it's if if this isn't as good as x2 it's extremely close uh to x2 um and i just i just really really like it a lot i really liked one of the things i did what enjoyed was they didn't shy away from the other movies this this movie touched every other movie in the franchise and we we there was footage from every other movie in the fan yeah, franchise in it exactly um not only which, touched but fixed yes <laughs> yeah well that yeah that that was you know the second half of it is is it wasn't afraid to say all this stuff happened and some of it is good and some of it is bad and we're just going to throw away the bad 
um, at, at the end. But to see those scenes, you know, when when Xavier was you know reaching into Wolverine's mind and saw him kill Jean and saw you know him go through Weapon X and uh, you know for Xavier to think back at his you know self as a child when he first met you know Raven and you know just uh, just everything else that uh, you know that's come and the fact that you know in you know that he had in the 70s he still had the bone claws so like it or or don't like it you know for you know X-Men Origins Wolverine still you know fit into the picture um and because of them recruiting him at the end of of the Wolverine you know that all fit in so it it was just nice that you know there are things we may not be happy about you know some of the other movies but it all fit and they all and they em- embraced it and found a way to fix it and i just thought that was really really cool Xavier even gets to tell Wolverine exactly what Wolverine told him in first class yes except he doesn't yeah. he paraphrases yeah. after saying i'll tell you the same thing but it, that's a minor and, and and the icing on the cake of all of that is while they've touched on it and you get the message in some of the earlier X films, I think this one exhibited the moral message of no matter how different or, 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 or what your origin is, um, you need to be accepted. Um, the, the, the message that the mighty Marvel bullpen of the sixties tried to put out there with, uh, the X-Men and, uh, later Chris Claremont and, I think that you that it really comes through strong in the story in this film without over empowering you and beating you over the head with that moral message. Well, that's why the yeah. metaphor works so well. I mean, it's this universal we I'm a metaphor of alienation. You know, it applies to the alienation of teenagers. It applies to race. It applies to to homosexuality. I mean, it applies to anyone who feels they're an outsider. I mean. I mean, selling alienation to teenagers is like shooting fish in a barrel, dude. Um, yeah. But, I mean, it, that's that's why the metaphor works, and I think that's why, you know, Brian Singer is able to bring it to bear and make it work for him because he understands that's exactly what makes X-Men work and why people identify with it, you know. Especially the alienation of us teenagers in uh, the 1980s that were reading X-Men, so. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's kind of funny, too, because this this movie had a lot of parallels, I thought, to the first X-Men movie. I mean, we saw X-1 and even First Class, if you think about it, it opened with, you know, the scene from, you know, World War Two with the young Magneto and, you know, his parents being taken away and during, you know, everything that was going on with the Holocaust. And this one opens up with a different kind of Holocaust, you know, where it's mutants and humans by the you know, literally by the truckload that are being bodies being dumped and abandoned and, you know, humans being and mutants being rounded up uh, and branded, you know, in internment camps and stuff like that. So I thought that was kind of a cool callback to the to the first X-Men movie in this one, just in a completely different circumstance, but kind of the same thing going on that happened, you know, in this case, you know, 85 years you know prior. Well, and like um, what? what Jim referenced earlier about when uh, Magneto loses his cool in the airplane and his uh, emotional response and, and his emotions getting away from him caused him to start tearing apart the plane kind of calls back to the whole, when he's ripping the gates down in the internment yeah. camp. And I mean, yeah. it just kind of shows that no matter how powerful um, he becomes and no matter how much control he can have um, at some point, you know, it gets the best of him, and uh, it it really goes to showcase the differences in the way he thinks about mutants separated from humans versus, uh, you know, the professor and the X Men. Yeah, 
a couple other things that I noticed were callbacks were the 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 ball bearings, which you know he used at one. He did that in in I, I think that was. I guess it was X one, yeah, where he made this this you know kind of the stairs and then the floating disc and all that kind of stuff, um, and then the guns, when he had the you know when he pulled the bunker out of the White House and and tore open the whole thing like a tin can and pulled everybody's guns and had them pointed back towards them and was getting ready to shoot everybody again. Call back to the first X Men movie when they kind of have their first big encounter uh, and he pulls the cops' guns and points them back at him and you know pulls the trigger you know. And then stops, you know, stops all the bullets. So I, th- I thought those those were really cool callbacks that that we got. Even little things uh, that were callbacks, like Jennifer Lawrence's fighting style being like really, very much like Rebecca remains, like that kind of savate, you know, kickboxing yeah. uh, uh, base style. Um, just you know, little little nods like that, you know. Um, all and the leg, like when she had the the Vietnamese general, when she had him pinned against the wall. I th- Rebecca Romaine did the same, you know, something similar. You know, right. prior where she just kind of, you know, just hiked that leg all the way up to pin somebody, you know, against the wall. So a lot of a lot of cool, you know, continuity callbacks uh, to kind of, you know, make you understand that, you know, this is in some ways, this is where all that began. I thought that Tons was really, of Easter eggs, uh, too. Tons of Easter yeah. eggs. Um, when, you know, when Fassbender goes or Meg, yeah, when Magneto goes to get his helmet and you see Angel's wing on the wall, um, just like... The, and Havoc suits, suit, right? The, and the quarter that he killed, um, what's his name with? Yeah, uh, Kevin, uh, Kevin Bacon's uh, Sebastian Shaw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a lot. So many Easter eggs and things. I can't wait till I like, get the Blu-ray so I can go back and just look, keep you know, catch all the things I missed. The Maximoffs. His helmet was all gnarly in this one. You know, it wasn't obviously it wasn't the same helmet from the beginning. You know that that he took from Shaw. I guess it was kind of a, a a take on the helmet he had at the very end of first class, um, but it was all kind of gnarly looking. I'm assuming they probably because they experimented on it and did all kinds of stuff, or you know, it just was worn from from the year year and a half between when you know first class took place and then he was captured after um, after the incident with Kennedy. That was the one thing. I, I guess if I if I want to nitpick a little bit, is the fact that basically he was only around for about a year. And then he was he was kid you know he was basically put on ice you know he was um, you know taken off the playing field so he didn't have a lot of time to you know work with the other mutants or kind of be this either nemesis or not to Charles and stuff like that but they're not going to cover that time period anyway so it doesn't it doesn't much matter but I, I just that was one of the things that kind of had me scratching my head just to, just a hair well and while you mention it. Uh, one of the things that bugged me, and I could be totally off base here because I don't have you know historical knowledge of plastics, but the guns that the guards were using yeah. seemed a little too out there for the seventies, let alone even today. Um, I mean, I've there's seen... some serious anachronisms going on all through it, dude. I mean, if, did you see the the Sentinels? You know? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I suspended disbelief. There's so many things that worked about everything going on in those scenes that it didn't really bother me. But I just kept thinking, I'm like, did they really have the ability to have that type of technology in the 1970s? No. Well, it was space age polymer. Well, I mean, the guns. I mean, it's just it, it's just like a regular gun, but instead of made out of metal, it's just made out of plastic. That, that I guess that didn't, that didn't really set me aback. 
you know, I, I just think it's one of those things that, like, practically you wouldn't make a gun out of plastic like that just because it wouldn't hold up. But at that point, if you have that many, you know, people and they're shooting at one target, you probably wouldn't need that many. You wouldn't need the thing to hold up over the long haul, I guess, is... Well, and nowadays yeah, I, you can get zip guns that are made that are made of resin and whatnot, but they still use a metal jacketed bullet, you know? Right, right. And I think they kind of talked about that a little bit, you know, with it being ceramic, but, um, you know, at least in the Sentinels, they were all ceramic and they were made out of some polymer. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to suspend a little bit of disbelief. I yeah. thought it was cool with the Sentinels that they were based on, and Trask said this specifically, they were based on Harrier jump jet technology, which right. that was very much, you know, uh, available at that time in the early 70s. But Yeah, but um, on the but opposite end of that, you have kind of the YouTube thing going on when uh, uh, Mystique is uh, outed out in, the, out in public. Yeah, you have like twenty five different people filming it, which would not have been the case in the seventies. No, well, I mean, you think of the Zapruder film. You yeah, know, that's, like, that's what I think they were referencing more than anything else. Well, and, yeah, one or two people. I mean, that was a big historical to do that was going on right there. So I could see there being lots of news cameras in the area, um, and as well, like Jordan said, I mean, you just had a president shot and one camera filmed it ten years earlier, so people probably are going to these historical events now with, you know, a lot of eight millimeters mm. and whatnot. But, um, I, I thought it was, we should also say that that's where Brian Singer's cameo was. Yeah. He was, uh, one of yeah. the guys holding the camera. And, yeah. Uh, I, you catch Len Wein and Chris Claremont. Oh yeah. They were yeah. senators, uh, yeah, senators, at the hearings yeah. in the beginning. Yeah. I, I, I thought that was really cool that, uh, that they brought them in there for that cameo. I thought that was, that was, that was a nice touch. Um, I know they, they, I don't know if you guys heard, but they asked John Byrne if he was uh, asked to cameo, and he said no. And then somebody asked him, would you have done it if they asked you? And he said no. So typical John Byrne being John Byrne. <laughs> yeah, so I thought the, the Claremont uh, Ween cameo was, was, was pretty cool. The other thing, this, this kind of used the Back to the Future theory of time travel, where the participants in the event, I kind of talked to Brad a little bit about this because he called me after he saw it. Um, and he's like, why, why would, you know, Wolverine remember? And I'm like, well, part of it is that's just the plot contrivance of this movie. But I kind of, I compared it to him to Back to the Future, right? You know, when Marty traveled through time, he was the direct participant. So he retained memories of, you know, everything that happened to him, but everyone around him, you know, that didn't physically travel back and forth didn't retain, you know, those memories and everything kind of changed around them. So I kind of, I kind of looked at it that way. And I know Back to the Future is one of those movies that is looked pretty favorably as far as the way they handled time travel. Uh, and so well, I, I kind of, I kind of put this in the same boat. And it, it's mentioned one of the, I forget who in the future, it may have been Kitty, that mentioned um, when he does wake up, uh, the rest of them won't remember. That's that's when all the changes right. will take effect. So what I'm thinking is his consciousness is caught in a in a stream of two timelines and because it's it's almost a wormhole type effect, he's actually outside time conscious uh subconsciously while his actual conscious is in his younger self. So that when everything sets back and he wakes up he's going to pull in the memories of both uh, ends of that wormhole, if you will, in time. And, and that would be why he would be able to remember it. Uh, plus again, it just, it, it helps further the plot. 
Yeah. Great episode of the uh, the Justice League cartoon. They all dealt with time travel. It was a big two-parter. And uh, it was mostly Jon Stewart and The Flash. And they you know, they go through all these rigmarole and all this thing. And then all of a sudden, they're sitting in the cafeteria and nothing has happened. Nobody remembers anything but them. Yeah. And they, they look at each other and they're like, I hate damn time travel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's kind of that for me anyway. That's just what I looked at. Yeah. One of the things that I think may be a little jarring to people is... So they had William Stryker in this. They made mention to his son, which I think was a cool callback. Anytime they, when they kind of alluded, when I think it was a cool plot device too, because when Wolverine saw him as you know Stryker on the uniform, it that kind of caused him to be out of the game for a little bit. And I thought it was, I, I, I thought it worked pretty well. I just wish it would have been Danny Houston that was playing Stryker um, instead of the actor they got. Um, who I mistook Hellman. for uh, I mistook for Stifler at first. <laughs> Look like well, uh, and, Sean William Scott a little bit. Yeah, and and that's another thing is it it doesn't seem like in my mind that the time between this existence in the seventies that we see in the film and and the striker we see later that we saw earlier in the earlier X films um, that there was that big of a gap of time between when he was the project X and weapon X and um, either, either I'm just wrong on the timeline there or striker aged really poorly. Yeah. And I I don't know if maybe it was, they wanted to recast it. Maybe Danny Houston wasn't available. Maybe he wanted too much money. Maybe they decided they wanted to go younger. So if they bring him back for another movie that they could do a better job of aging him up a little bit as opposed to making Danny Houston look younger. But because of Three Mile Island, um, I think we pinned X-Men Origins Wolverine at 1979. So if this is 73 and that's 79, so there's like a six-year difference. And I think Danny Houston is, is probably he's probably in his late 40s, I would guess. Well, I mean, the um, biggest change here is that it's not really Stryker at the end of the movie. It's Mystique. I mean, and that begs the question, will Wolverine actually even get his metal claws? You know, or would, well, would Mystique turn him into her own personal weapon axe? Or I don't know. It's a shame we'll never get another movie to find out the answer to that Yeah, question. they would never yeah. make another one. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> but see, I wasn't sure because I... And when I saw it the second time, I was like, okay, I'm specifically going to look and see. But they didn't show Stryker being killed. But then they show Mystique. So it's like, did Mystique kill Stryker and take his identity like she did Senator Kelly in the first one? Or is she just kind of using this as an opportunity to kind of put Logan on the path that he needed to be on? Like, did she use this to uh, to draft him into the into the military? I, like, I was I think it's a little vague as to what, uh, you know, what's truly going to happen with him. But I, 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 yeah, I mean, it could it could be that she pushes him to a point where he just doesn't get a part of weapon X, but hard, you, hard to say. Do you think that'll fit into some of the answers we could get in apocalypse? Nah, or, I don't think so. I, I wouldn't think so either. So I, I think, I think well, especially since that'll be taking place a uh, 10 years later, you know, approximately. Yeah. I, I think the whole metal and Wolverine and his, you know, skeleton is so integral to the character. I think whatever was done is not going to deter that from happening. The only, the only weird thing is, is, at this point, Mystique wouldn't really know that. Like, she doesn't have that knowledge of, you know, what he would have went through. So, um, but I, I thought it was a cool touch. I thought it was kind of interesting that 
you know, I, I'm not one of those people that thinks every question needs an answer. Right. Um, so I'm I'm fine with it being a little ambiguous. And I love the reveal of it not being Stryker. Yes. That really threw me for the loop the first time. I was like, whoa. Well, it's a nice callback yeah. to the first X-Men movie, too, where they're watching TV and they see Mystique Sides and Senator Kelly. Yeah, yeah. You know, right. That's right at the end of that movie as well. How cool was it that Magneto took RFK Stadium and just used it to encircle the White House? I mean, <laughs> that was pretty impressive. It was impressive, but at the same time, I found it kind of, I don't know, a little over the top. Well, it is Magneto. Yeah, that's Magneto. I mean, he is over the top. That's his That's his deal. Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and everything? Well, and here's the, here's the thing, is basically <laughs> this entire action that happens at the end of the movie is to prevent uh, the future Sentinel War and, and, and the U.S. government coming down on mutants, and you would think that some guy slapping a baseball stadium over the White House might be a linchpin that releases a little bit of mutant hate. But it was the human weapon turning against them, yeah. not just the the mutants. I thought it was more of a, a situation of him taking advantage, you know, making hay while the sun was shining. I mean, uh, he's already you know subverted the the um, sentinels to his will or whatever on the in that train sequence. You know, why not go all the way and just declare what he really wants, which is you know what he's been thinking about in the cell all the time, which is you know Homo Superior taking over. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just took it exactly that. that Opportuni- opportunism. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, it's not going to work the other way. We're not going to get them to back off. So the only thing they understand, especially after creating, I think he would have been fine until they made a big display of the Sentinels and, you know, going to make this big show at at the White House and unveil it. I think at that point he's like, no, the only thing they understand is violence. The only the, the only thing they understand is deterrence. And if I could, as one person, can put this ridiculously over-the-top display of power um, out there, then it's going to make them think twice about what they about you know what they do and how they move forward. So, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, that that totally worked for me. I, I did think it was a little goofy that apparently injecting uh, metal into the robots will allow him to control their computers, which apparently run without metal, which is interesting. Um, in the first place, but I mean, it worked for me in the movie, but it is a strange choice that that would work in any way, even if we assume that these robots could exist. Was it that or or did they detect the mutants and so they became active and Magneto just had the ability to control where it was? They were, you know, just he was able to, to change the where it was directed at. So when they started shooting, think they were shooting at mutants. He was able because of all that metal in there, just be able to move them around to shoot at the humans. Yeah, I think he was he was giving them voice commands. Well, that's at true. Points, yeah. I think yeah. you know he he was the one who activated them in the first place remotely, just with his powers. Well, he has and- an intricate knowledge knowledge of electronics and was able to uh, take all that metal and actually make circuitry out of it. Uh, so that- <laughs> because mutants, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because well, mutants. And that's the thing. Help me understand a little bit better, too. And I mean, I know the X-Men pretty well, but I, I'm trying to think with Magneto. I, I understand his ability to control metal and, and, and all that, but can he actually see through the metal he's controlling? Because he's outside this train and everything, and he's able to weave this metal into the places it needs to be, and he's not actually in eye contact with it. Can he sense through the metal and see or or how how does that work 
I guess I I didn't see him do anything that really I don't think I've not seen him do in the comics, so I didn't really question it too much. I mean, it didn't bother me. I just was trying to figure out can can he does he have sense through the metal as he's manipulating it? Well, was did he have a mirror when he was sewn up the back of his head, or was he just floating it? He had a lot of stuff suspended there, so I can't remember. Well, That's he can true. Say, I mean. And we've seen him be able to feel and sense metal. Like when he first meets Wolverine, he can tell, you know, yeah. that he's, his whole skeleton is made of metal just by feeling or sensing the metal. So, I mean, I don't know. It must be uh, more of a, I, I don't know. And he pulled the, honest. he pulled the bunker out of the, you know, 35th floor below ground or whatever out of the White House and that, that's true. slap it on the yeah. front lawn. So he's the aluminum whisperer I, I stand yes. by my i stand by my earlier and yes i know aluminum not magnetic whatever i stand by my earlier statement because means thank you I, <laughs> yes. I i stand by that as well good point so i guess we could talk about unless anybody else has anything specifically to to mention i guess we could talk about the ending uh so obviously everything goes back wolverine wakes up and i, I mean i i didn't criticize it for the fact that everybody kind of got a happy ending I just I was really happy to see that we got the button re, you know everything was reset and you know that Scott's alive, Gene's alive, you know everybody's you know back to normal. I I just thought that was really really well done where he wakes up again. He's a little confused and when he you know turns around and sees Gene standing there and he's just really right, disoriented yeah, and Doesn't that mean though that Scott was there the whole time and he never really had like a thing with Gene? Like, doesn't that kind of erase all that? Like, he knows he had a thing yeah. with Gene, but Gene doesn't at all? It, that's the way I took it, yeah. Yeah. That's and, kind of weird. Now, and, and I like this ending, and I like that everybody but Trask had a happy ending. Um, my, Are, are we going to see which actors or which versions of these characters are we going to get in the future films? I mean, are we taking off from the reset point that that we had at the end of this film so we're going to have more of the Patrick Stewart Ian McKellen the modern day X-Men I doubt or it. I I see I doubt it too I mean but I'm trying to figure out you know how are they going to keep this awesome job they did at 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 fixing the continuity while keeping the continuity strong going forward if if we're going to i mean i i'm just trying to figure out how how exactly was it reset well if it's taking place in 1980 i would imagine they would probably go with mcavoy fassbender and lawrence again well and, and, I, at the, at the core. and the, I think they've said as yeah. much and yeah. uh i mean face if i mean you know as as wonderful and as incredible as ian mckellen and, and patrick stewart are they're both in their 70s I right believe. Um, right so yeah. i mean you know ba- basing a future franchise on them Probably not the greatest thing, uh, greatest idea, but um, I, don't know, I, I definitely think going forward they'll probably go with the first class uh, cast. Yeah, and I mean everybody else is getting older too. I mean Famke Jansen's what? She's got to be pushing fifty. She's definitely in her late late forties. Um, Marsden is, I think, probably late thirties. Maybe he's probably pretty close to my age. Maybe a little bit younger, but. I I think we'll see those. Char- I think they just opened it up so we we could see those characters as younger versions of uh, than what we saw, and it not feel like that they're they're going against anything. I mean, one of the things they couldn't do was bring some of those characters as a part of you know this this eighties class of you know at Xavier's 
because it would kind of contradict some stuff they had before. Now that the slate is kind of clean, they can really bring anybody in at any point um, because the game has been the game has been changed. Right. So, um, so are they, I think so. Are they going to recast like uh, Storm and 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 Summers and and Gene and all of that, or are we just not going to see I think, those characters? No, I think I, I mean. I know there's been word out that for Apocalypse that some of the original, they said, I, I took it as original characters would be back. I know some people are thinking, oh, well, that means that the cast is going to be back. I didn't take what that quote as that. I took it as those characters will be back. So if this, if Apocalypse is set in the 80s, then I could see where we're going to get Teenage Gene, Teenage Scott, and Teenage Storm. And it makes um, more sense teen- than we would, that we would, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that way, again, they can move forward a little more rapidly and not have to worry that they're casting actors in their 50s and pushing pushing 60s for some of these people, maybe in in five to six years, that they could kind of progress at a more natural rate with actors that can age at a more natural pace because they kind of shoehorn themselves in. Just about every character they've introduced in the in that, you know, days of in the first class timeline is dead. So they're going to need new characters right. anyway. Exactly. Might as well, you know, reuse those and old thank ones. Goodness exactly. You can wipe away all that um, X-Men Origins Wolverine continuity. <laughs> Does that mean we can get a good uh, Deadpool movie in the future that's sans uh, Ryan Reynolds? Mm. Well, I'd love to have Ryan Reynolds in it, just not that version of Deadpool. Like I thought, it was I thought his um, Wade Wilson was spot on. It was just everything after they got right. after after he was dead in the movie was terrible. I want to yeah. see. I want to see and sorry as Deadpool. <laughs> I wouldn't. Hate I think that. I would love that. I, I think that. Would I would. Be I would be down for that. I would be there day one for that one. He, uh, he would be perfect. Yeah. And the Deadpool movie needs to be uh, uh, written by the current writers of Deadpool as well. Oh, Dugan and Posehn. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. Posehn has yeah. done such a fabulous job with Deadpool. So what do we think about the... So at the very end of the credits, which annoys me when anybody does this, I wish they would just do this at the end of what they call like the hero credits, you know, where they... Before everything scrolls up, because it just annoys me that you have to sit there that long. I was I was kind of expecting it, but kind of not expecting it. And so we get a glimpse at Apocalypse, who is actually responsible, as it turns out, for creating the pyramids. And we get a nice glimpse when they flip around to see his face, and it's the blue. I'm glad they didn't do the weird, like, mouth lines and, and stuff like that, but it's just right. kind of the blue, you know, the, the pale blue face and the, and the dark blue lips. Uh, and we see four characters on horses uh, behind him. And I thought that was, that was the perfect way to handle that, uh, that scene. I thought using androgynous teenage uh, apocalypse was a strange and bad choice, especially because I can't imagine that that's the version they're going with in the actual movie. Um, and, you know, it, no one, no one's paying to see androgynous teenage uh, apocalypse. They want to see, you know, giant roided out apocalypse. So I thought it was strange. I, I like that they are introducing him, but aside from that, everything about that scene kind of fell flat for me. The CG looked weird. Um, well, I think it was rushed, and it, yeah, it was just n- none of it worked for me. The idea is great. The execution of that thirty seconds was just strange. I'm pretty positive that that's not the version of Apocalypse we're going to see in the next movie. I think because that's right. No, I agree. That's 2500 BC Apocalypse. That the you know, or 2500 BC or whatever it is, uh, um, Apocalypse. That the 
year 1980-ish uh, apocalypse is probably going to be more akin to what we're used to seeing and and be be a much more imposing force is my guess but and this gives them time to determine exactly what future apocalypse is going to look like i right. get that still though you know that was not the apocalypse anyone wants to see and if you look back at the i mean at the original comics i mean the the way that they've they've gone back and filled in his history the way that old apocalypse looks versus new apocalypse is a lot different as well so it it True. it fits it, it kind of fits in that regard but well, um isn't Apocalypse in pre-production right now? Aren't they already starting down that mm. path? Isn't principal photography like in three or four months? I don't think I that soon. I think they're, I think they're working on script. I mean, it, they they got a date set for 2016. So my guess is it'll probably be filming, you know, probably early next year or you know before the summer 2015. I think I think they've got a, a a bit of time to go yet because they haven't even had casting announcements or anything. Well, um, well, they have on IMDb. Of course, they got Jennifer Lawrence, Fassbender, uh, Holt, McAvoy, sure. and Peters. And then what I feel is probably one of the worst choices that they're going to make and uh, possibly could ruin the film is Channing Tatum as uh, uh, Gambit. Um, I, I have no problems with him after 21 Jump Street. Yeah, I, d- I don't. I had no opinion of him, period, before that, but I have no problems with him now. Yeah, I don't. I don't. That that doesn't bother me as, as him playing Gambit. I... I I can't stand him. I just can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> and 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 the only thing that I've really liked him in was 21 Jump Street, but I hear he's great in Magic Mike. I haven't seen it, but I have heard only good things about his performance in it. As long as he doesn't go overboard with the accent, I think he'll be okay. Yeah, he's got to do a better job than Taylor Kitsch. Come on, guys. Yeah, it's not saying a whole lot though. Exactly. Yeah, I know. <laughs> setting the exactly. bar kind of low. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm excited. I'm I'm again. I'm excited for what they're going to do with this franchise. I'm excited the way they handled the source material, um, and overall, it was just it was just really well done. I had pretty high expectations um, for this one. I mean, it's one of it's probably my second favorite storyline of of all time in the comics, uh, and the way and the fact that they were able to pull it off and pull it off successfully, I think, is a huge deal. Um, one of the one of the things I'll say real real quick to kind of finish up on on the apocalypse thing is um especially since we spent a long time on the LOD covering uh, Age of Apocalypse uh, and all the issues and episodes related to that is that um by by the characters going back in time and there was a, there was a uh, Xavier was killed before he formed the X-Men and that display of mutant power at such an early stage is what sparked Apocalypse to come on the scene when he did um, I wonder if they're going to use the 73 incident as the spark to bring uh, Apocalypse into that uh, timeline in the 80s, since obviously, I guess not, maybe not obviously, but it, it appears that didn't happen originally if they set this in the 80s and Apocalypse comes into it. So, again, I think it's cool that they'll, I'm hopeful that they'll continue the repercussions of um, of that forward. I think with Singer at the helm, they they most likely will. Probably so. Um, and as Jim, uh, I think, put on Facebook earlier, if if you're curious what we thought of the comic storyline of X-Men Days of Future Past, uh, we did an LOD episode, episode 19, way back in the early, early days of the LOD. Um, it was released on December 31st of 2008, so... Almost five years, or almost six years at this point, 
Um, you can go to the hhwlod.com and look up the Long Box of Doom feed and scroll down and go to episode 19 if you want to listen to that retro episode. And if so you want to do hear, ratings uh, out of... Well, if you want to hear more on Russell's thoughts on Days of Future Past, he joined Aaron and Abe on the uh, Out Now with Aaron and Abe podcast to uh, to review it. So you can check that out on the feed as well if you want to hear Russ talk a little bit more about it. Yeah, that was... And uh, coming up on the feed next week uh, for our Jersey Shore episode, it's me, my sister, and her fiancé, uh, the two of them who don't read comics, and me talking about the movie, which we had a lot of fun doing that with uh, Captain America. I like having that kind of mixed review of fanboys and people who know absolutely nothing about the comics uh, coming to terms with it. So that that was a lot of fun. So look for that and next week. And if you're hearing impaired, cool. uh, you can read my review on hhwlod.com. So. Awesome. So do we want to rate it out of 10? We'll let the we'll let the newest uh we'll let the newbie go first. Well, I gave it a four and a half out of five stars in my review, so I guess that would equate to a nine out of ten. Sure, sure. Jordan? I think I'll go even higher. This is my by far favorite X-Men movie so far. I think I'll go nine and a half. Um, it, for me, it's this one, then First Class, and then the others are kind of a, a jumble in between there. But I loved every second of this movie, saw it twice, loved every second of it both times. I just had a great experience, lots of fun stuff, lots of really touching, dramatic moments. And uh, I'm, I'm more excited for this franchise than I have ever been in the past. So, I give this a 9 out of 10 for sure. It's solid... Uh... Definitely a solid entry. I'm in the middle of a rewatch on the rest of the movies to see where I place in my hierarchy, but it's definitely going to be one or, you know, either the first or second slot because there's just so much good in this movie. There's just so much done right. And I'm so glad that, uh, the ball wasn't dropped. Instead, they, uh, they really, like, not only give us a great standalone movie, but we're able to re- totally relaunch the franchise in a cool way. So, nine out of ten. Awesome. I'm going to go with Jordan. So it's, so we got a split bill here. I'm going to give it a nine and a half. Um, like I said, I just I loved every minute of it. Uh, the fact that they nailed the ending, which I think nowadays isn't isn't kind of a given thing. I think we see a lot of movies that, um, you know, that are are pretty good, and then the ending is a little so so. Um, and this Star Trek in the Darkness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think this one really stuck the landing, and I think it put it in a put the franchise in a great place. Um, you know, moving forward. So uh, nine and a half for me. So I guess that about does it for this episode of Real Heroes on X-Men Days of Future Past. Uh, like we said, next time, probably within, I would say, within a week or two at the at the most, um, we'll pop out another one for Amazing Spider-Man 2, which I think probably won't be as highly regarded as this one is, um, but probably not, uh, not the worst of the worst. That is definitely for sure. Um, and then, like I said, we will do our best to squeak in a Green Lantern in June, uh, and then we'll be back, or in June, in July, rather, and then we'll be back for sure with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy in August. Um, so unless anybody has anything else, definitely check out hhwlod.com for all the great shows that we do on the network. Uh, check out the Facebook page, um, facebook.com slash hhwlod. Um, check out our YouTube channel. Um, I was at Comic Palooza, the Houston uh, comic convention, last weekend and was able to sit in on the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. panel uh, which were attended by Clark Gregg, Mina Wen, Brett Dalton, Elizabeth Henstridge, 
J. August Richard and uh, Glenn Morshauer, and that was a ton of fun. So I got some video of that. Uh, I put that up on on the YouTube channel. And uh, we've done a couple live shows now on the YouTube channel. So youtube.com slash HHWLOD Podcast Network. Um, or, check again, check out the Facebook group or the, the webpage, uh, and there's links all over the place for that. So, And also check out our YouTube, our, our, check out our YouTube channel in the coming weeks. We're going to be uh, live streaming some games on Twitch.tv and then uh, archiving them on the YouTube channel in case you miss them when they go live. Which would be awesome. I'm looking forward to that. Oh, I'm looking forward um, to it, too. It'll be fun. Yeah. People love their video games on the Internet. Frogger for everyone. <laughs> uh, so this is Russ for Jim, Rich, and Jordan. Uh, we'll see you next time on Real Heroes. Whiplash. <laughs> so.